amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. In the days leading up to February 25th, 2010, there were a few odd interactions in Rancho Bernardo Community Park, located in San Diego County. As a woman was walking her two dogs along a trail in Rancho Bernardo Community Park, she was stopped by a tall, slightly overweight man who warned her about the rattlesnakes along the path. After a brief conversation, she informed him that her dogs were trained to detect rattlesnakes and she politely ended the conversation. Another woman was stopped on her way to the two-mile marker on the park's trail by a strange man who told her to be careful of the rattlesnakes and he had one of them near his feet. She spoke to him for a few minutes, then continued her run. After she turned around to head back to her car, she saw a rattlesnake closer to the trail, set up as though it was on purpose. On the evening of February 25, 2010, Kathy Osborne, a psychiatric nurse whose son was recovering after one of his many psychotic breaks, impatiently waited for him to come home. She knew he needed help, but struggled to find a facility to accommodate his needs. Her nerves were frayed. Over the years, he'd graphically detailed the many ways he'd fantasized about taking his own life. When he finally came home, he was dirty and sweaty, with a deep scratch on his nose and a headless snake in his hand. This is Monsters. John Albert Gardner III was born in Culver City, California on April 9, 1979, to mother Kathy Osborne and father, who shared his name, John Albert Gardner. He had two older half-sisters. Most of his family called him Little John or Lil John to separate him from his father, but once he grew up, he wanted to be called John Albert Gardner III instead. He grew up with a lot of family around him. Kathy worked long hours, leaving his aunt and cousins to help raise him. He was close to his siblings, Shannon and Serena. His relationship with one of his aunts, however, was complicated. While the terms of it have not been confirmed, John had sex repeatedly with his aunt. She claimed that he was the aggressor and he claimed that she was. Kathy already had two daughters when she met John Sr. and they developed an intense love until Kathy grew concerned about John's drinking. Eighteen months into the relationship, she got pregnant. This led to a change in John Sr. He got a DUI and lost his license, meaning Kathy had to drive him to work, which made him feel emasculated. One day, while he was aggressively giving her directions, he pointed to the turn she should have taken and accidentally hit her in the face, leaving her with a black eye. After finding out Kathy was pregnant with his first child, he proposed but claimed it was out of obligation. She turned him down, saying she wouldn't marry him as long as he still drank. 
John Jr.'s early life was a trying time for the couple. John Sr. said he would refuse to change diapers, but Kathy was sure his mood would improve once the baby was born. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case, as he couldn't cope with a newborn's constant crying. He showed little interest in their son, while Kathy adored him. John Jr. had allergies and ear infections that made him fussy, and he was an extremely active baby. He suffered from asthma and had trouble sleeping. Kathy planned out an entire routine to help him relax, where she bathed and read to him. John Sr. hated being awoken in the morning, typically due to drinking heavily the night before. If the floorboards even creaked, he would fly into a rage. One morning, John Jr. wouldn't stop crying. His sisters were too frightened to leave the bed to comfort him, and John Sr. became so aggravated that he stormed out of the bed and spanked the baby ten times. Kathy came home to see John Jr. still shaken. She checked his diaper and saw dark marks on his skin, thinking it was feces until she looked closer and realized they were bruises. She grabbed her children and her belongings and loaded them into the car, refusing to let John Sr. hurt her children again. He called every day to apologize, begging her to come home and promising to never do anything like that again. She told him to quit drinking, so he started going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and attending an outpatient rehab program. There was a change in him, and she soon felt safe bringing her children back to the house. He kept trying to propose, but she didn't know if he was serious. Eventually, in 1980, they got married when John Jr. was 16 months old. John Jr.'s struggles became apparent when he was very young. The behavior that was once seen as cute and mischievous showed signs of becoming darker. At four years old, he struggled with impulse control enough that he began to take a low dose of Ritalin, intended only for use when he was in school to help him pay attention in class. In first grade, his behavior worsened when he would shout profanities at his teacher. He frequently threw tantrums, making trips to the grocery store a miserable experience, and his teachers felt that many of his outbursts were him seeking attention. He expressed his self-loathing, feeling that everyone hated him. His Ritalin dosage was increased, and it caused depression to hit him when the medication wore off in the evening. His father mocked him when he cried, making John Jr. feel ashamed for being a quote-unquote crybaby. Kathy had some back and forth with John Jr.'s doctor, who took him off the Ritalin entirely to see if that would help his behavior. But the issues didn't go away. In class, he was distracted, taking on the role of a class clown while making strange noises and being unable to sit still. By the time he was six years old, he had started a fire in a wastebasket, and at age seven, he and a friend set a large field on fire that required the fire department to put it out. Kathy continued to consult with the doctors about John's medications, especially after she became a registered nurse in 1985 and could recognize signs of distress in her son. They continued to tweak his Ritalin dosage, increasing it to make him do better in school. Due to the nature of the drug, Kathy also gave him Benadryl at night to help him sleep. His parents' relationship deteriorated throughout his early years. John Sr. fell off a ladder while lifting boxes at work and was on disability. They rented their house but had the option to buy, so Kathy worked double shifts at one hospital and weekends at another to afford the down payment. John Sr. took codeine for his back and it made him miserable. He fell into a state of depression, although his mood improved when he began to smoke marijuana for the pain. 
With Kathy working such long hours, John Sr. had to spend much more time with his son. He got him ready for school, and when he got home, they would play video games together. However, there appeared to be a disconnect between the father and son, where they never fully bonded despite John Sr.'s actions. Kathy was blindsided when she found out that her husband had been doing speed and cocaine, and thus, to fund his habit, he drained all of their savings that Kathy had worked countless hours to make to buy drugs. Unable to forgive her husband, Kathy had John Jr. stay with his grandmother while she worked long hours. After a few months, Kathy had her own apartment. John Jr. wanted to know if he'd still see his father, admitting years later that he was so scared of him that he feared he'd be in trouble for not living with him full-time. He spent the summer with Kathy, but she could tell he missed his father. Before school started, he asked if he could move back in with John Sr. Kathy hoped that it was a chance for the father and son to connect, thinking that, without her there, it would give them more time to bond. John Jr. didn't take Riddle in that summer, so John Sr. decided he no longer needed it. Then, a few weeks into the fourth grade, he was sent home with notes about his out-of-control behavior. Kathy was called by the principal's office, who told her that John was off of his meds and showed so many signs of neglect that they called Child Protective Services. Kathy took John Jr. home with her, and he quickly made excuses for his father, telling her it wasn't his fault. John Jr. was carrying a lot of anger and sadness. His father made him believe it was his fault that his parents separated, telling him that they wouldn't be in that situation if he behaved and did as he was told. Distressed from the breakdown of his parents' relationship and the role he thought he played in it, John Jr.'s tantrums turned into fits of rage, where he'd throw objects or even himself against the wall. He pushed Kathy away if she tried to be affectionate with him, convinced that love was not a safe thing to feel because, at one time, his parents loved each other and it ended in disaster. John Jr. could no longer be handled in a regular classroom after his outbursts continued, and he was suspended when he threw a fit in the principal's office. The school was in the process of putting him into a program for emotionally disturbed youth, but it was clear to Kathy that he could no longer be in a regular school at all. He was adamant that his parents' separation was his mother's fault, and he would tell her about his violent, suicidal plans, like running into traffic or stabbing himself. He kept setting things on fire like a toilet paper roll tossed into the bathtub. In February of 1989, John Jr. was finally admitted to an inpatient program at UCLA. Doctors noted his lack of self-awareness, denial of his symptoms, and suicidal tendencies. He showed rageful resentment towards his mother, yet appeared to feel separation anxiety when he was away from her. His diagnosis was Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, an adjustment disorder with mixed emotional features, including his depressive states. After analyzing his behavior, the doctor concluded that he liked to antagonize other children, didn't like to share, had a short temper, lacked insight, and had poor judgment. He displayed a false sense of bravado, which he used to compensate for his low self-esteem and feelings of abandonment by bragging about things like his physical strength or intellect. After being released from the hospital, John lived with Kathy and her new boyfriend, Dan, and slept on the couch. The three of them moved a few times, and John was put into a private school for severely emotionally disturbed children. He continued to see psychiatrists and tried a variety of psychiatric medications, although they often gave him side effects that made him not want to take them. 
With barely any contact from his biological father, John Jr. began to see Dan as a father figure. Adolescence gave way to episodes of mania and euphoria, as well as poor impulse control and a short attention span. Sometimes his meds worked, and others they didn't. In manic states, he was often ruled by his sex drive. Kathy remained fearful of his outbursts, worrying that he was becoming even more out of control as he got older. Towards the end of high school, things got better for John Jr. when he developed outlets like hockey, a sport he was good at and loved. He played other sports too, like soccer, baseball, and basketball. He loved math and was in the school choir, showing off his singing voice that also had a high range. His family and friends cared deeply for him, describing him as the kind of person that would do anything for a friend, including standing up to school bullies. He maintained a 3.2 grade point average and graduated from Rim of the World High School in Lake Arrowhead, California in 1997. He had a few girlfriends over the years, including his high school sweetheart, Jenny, who teased him for his high energy and was not deterred by his bursts of anger as they were always aimed at other men. John was a serial cheater in relationships, leading to Jenny breaking up with him, although he soon moved on to his next girlfriend, Patricia. His interest was typically in younger girls, and one of his earliest known victims was a 13-year-old female neighbor. He was arrested for his crime, but denied any initial wrongdoing. Later, he confessed to his family that he had hit the girl, but nothing sexual happened. John was convicted in 2000 for molesting his neighbor and served five years in prison. He pleaded not guilty, feeling victimized by the system even though there was clear evidence against him. Kathy fought for her son to be given mental health treatment and probation instead. She believed the 13-year-old neighbor had a massive crush on John, which is why she accused him of touching her. Kathy believed her son's story that nothing sexual happened between the pair. Even after the probation request was rejected and John signed a plea deal, his family was convinced that he was innocent and misrepresented in court. John's prison time tested his mental health even further when he had a psychotic break that led him to being sent to a mental facility. Despite his issues in prison, he completed his parole in 2008, even though he violated its terms seven times. One of those violations was his living too close to a school. Since his release from prison, John's behavior had gotten worse. He had suicidal impulses and his erratic behavior was scaring his mother, Kathy. On the morning of February 25, 2010, John was staying with Kathy. He lived with his grandmother at the time, but he was staying at Kathy's apartment. The past few months had been unbearable. He intentionally totaled two cars, one that he drove into a pole and the other into a cement barrier. Kathy tried to get him admitted to a psychiatric hospital, where John admitted he was in danger of hurting himself or another person. Rather than being an inpatient at the hospital, he was prescribed some medication and sent home. Less than a week later, John was rushed to the emergency room after a suicidal binge of illicit drugs like methamphetamine. He was released from the hospital on February 19th, and Kathy took him to stay with her for a while. She hadn't given up on finding more intense treatment, but he decided that he needed a drug rehab rather than treatment for his mental health struggles. Many of the clinics and treatment centers he spoke to were already full, and the others refused to take him as he was now a registered sex offender. They kept trying to find somewhere for him, but were unsuccessful. He wasn't sleeping, and the medicine he was given led to side effects that drove him mad. 
Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Kathy stopped pushing him to seek help when she started to see that the meds were working. That was until he developed a rash on his arms, chest, and stomach. She told him to stop taking the medication until they could speak to a doctor, but then his grandmother was unexpectedly hospitalized. Kathy and Dan drove two hours to see her and didn't get home until 1 a.m. on February 25th. When they returned, John wasn't home. He didn't answer Kathy's calls, but returned home around 8 p.m. on the night of the 25th. He was covered in dirt and sweat, wearing a manic, almost wild expression, while he held a headless snake in his hands. The snake, he said, tried to attack him and forced him to kill it. The deep gash on his nose didn't look like a wound that a snake would have inflicted, but she didn't question him. The next day, Kathy went to the nail salon, where she found out that there was a missing girl. Flyers of Chelsea King were everywhere, posted in all local businesses, and alerts were sent out via Twitter and Facebook. On February 25, 2010, 17-year-old Chelsea King went out for an afternoon jog at Rancho Bernardo Community Park. She was a senior at Poway High School and was seen leaving the school at around 2 p.m. Usually, she would be home by 5.30, and when 6 p.m. hit, her parents grew concerned. Chelsea followed a regular schedule and left the house that morning at 6.15 a.m. for a peer counseling appointment. When it got dark that evening, her parents called Chelsea's friends who said she was at school that day. There was still no sign of her as the evening progressed, leading her father, Brent, to call AT&T to see if they could find her location. They detected her cell phone near the Rancho Bernardo Community Park. Worried that she might have fallen and hurt herself, Brent raced to the park to find her. He saw her car sitting in the parking lot, close to the trail, and inside the vehicle were her purse and school clothes that she must have left there after she changed for the run. He called her name as he raced down the trail, but never got a response. Chelsea enjoyed long runs and could run miles at a time, meaning she could be anywhere along the path. She had fainted during a recent run, so her parents contacted authorities worried that she could be injured and unable to call for help. Chelsea King was born on July 2, 1992 in San Diego County. Her parents, Brent and Kelly, doted on her, particularly after her tough delivery, where the doctor didn't remove the entire placenta and left Kelly with Asherman syndrome. She was very close to her younger brother and the family moved a few times, living in the San Francisco Bay Area and Naperville, Illinois before returning to Poway in 2007. Chelsea was a bright student and excelled in school. By her senior year, she was in more advanced placement courses than regular ones, and her grade point average was 4.2. She was a peer counselor, played volleyball, ran cross-country, and loved to write poetry. She was a vegetarian and passionate about the environment. In fact, the reason that she went to the Rancho Bernardo Community Park that day was so that she could scout out the area. She and her friends were planning an environmental cleanup project for the upcoming Saturday, and she wanted to check it out before then. Her grades and extracurricular activities earned her a spot at each of the 11 colleges to which she applied. 
There was no reason for her to be home late that night, and as the hours passed, her family knew something was very wrong. Another teenage girl went missing over a year before, and the community quickly drew parallels between the two disappearances. On the morning of Friday, February 13, 2009, 14-year-old Amber Dubois was getting ready to go to Escondido High School, where she was a student. It was an exciting morning for Amber as she had a check in her pocket to buy a lamb for her school's farming program. She texted her grandmother at around 6.30 a.m., and about 15 minutes later, she texted a friend who she often walked to school with, who texted her back but never got a response. Her last class of the day ended at 2.45 p.m., and she was almost always home within an hour of leaving school. But Amber didn't return home that afternoon, and with her being so predictable, her parents began to panic. Amber was born on October 25, 1994. Her parents separated when she was a baby, and she spent her weekends with her father, Mo, and lived in Escondido during the week with her mother, Carrie, and her mother's boyfriend, Dave. She loved animals and knew that she wanted to become an animal behavioral specialist. Therefore, when she learned of the Future Farmers of America program, she was eager to participate. She was a bookworm, and on days when she walked to school alone, she would typically have her nose pressed in a book. It was a cold, rainy morning on the day that she went missing, and people believed that they saw a teenage girl walking with her hood over her head. Dave went to the school to find her when he ran into a teacher that told him that Amber wasn't there that day. In fact, he said they even called the house around lunchtime to report that she never turned up. He was dumbfounded. Even on an ordinary day, he'd be concerned that she wasn't at school. But she was so excited that morning about buying the lamb that there was no way she wouldn't have gone. A few hours after she should have come home, her family reported her missing. Authorities had little information to go off of. The sun started to set and there was still no news. Escondido police scoured the neighborhood, looking around the school in the nearby creek, to no avail. Carrie and Dave did the same thing, knocking on doors, desperate for clues. They thoroughly retraced her route to school, not willing to accept that something bad may have happened to her. Friends joined them, but even with such an extensive search crew, they were unable to uncover any sign of Amber that night. When authorities and the family learned that Amber's cell phone was briefly turned on to check messages, there was renewed hope. The Escondido Police Department released an emergency notification for the community about her disappearance, urging people to report any information they had. Several sightings of Amber from that morning were reported. One parent saw her walking quickly in the rain at about 7 a.m., and a neighbor saw her walking close to the school, where she was talking to a taller man. A classmate reported that they saw her walking with two teenagers on Saturday evening, one day after she was reported missing, and then another student claimed to have seen her walking with a boy on Sunday evening, another day after she was reported missing, in a rural part of town that was where most kids went to party. Witness statements began to paint the picture that there might not have been foul play involved in Amber's disappearance and that she could have been a teenage runaway. Carrie was adamant that Amber wouldn't run away from home or go partying. However, authorities were starting to think otherwise. The suspicions of the police offered another possible scenario and split the investigation in two. Was Amber a runaway that wanted to escape home due to family issues, or was there a more sinister reason for her to vanish so abruptly? In the days following her disappearance, a search and rescue effort was set up at Rincon Middle School where officers and volunteers came together to pass out flyers, knock on doors, and search the surrounding areas. 
Searchers worked through the avocado groves, up the hills, and searched for her in a nearby canyon. They also combed through abandoned buildings. Despite their efforts, finding clues seemed impossible. Dogs trained to follow live scents were used on February 17th and 18th, but after two weeks, they were replaced by cadaver dogs, who took to combing through the nearby mountainous terrain where authorities and locals feared her body would be found. Her father, Mo, took a leave from his job and moved to a hotel with his partner. He devoted his days to the search effort. Dave, her mother's boyfriend, who she referred to as her stepfather, was the last person to interact with her before she disappeared and was blindsided when he became a person of interest. He wasn't at work on the day of her disappearance, but still missed the phone call from the school to say that Amber was absent. There was tension between Dave and Amber, and the pair bickered often. They spent the evening before her disappearance together, where they supposedly reconciled their differences. Accusations mounted since she went missing less than 24 hours later. When Dave recalled his interaction with Amber that morning, he mentioned that she asked him multiple times for the check and that he kept telling her that he'd give it to her before he left for the gym. Carrie feared that he might have lost his temper on Amber and could have knocked her down the stairs. He took a polygraph test eight times, with police becoming more desperate to find the perpetrator. Six weeks after Amber's disappearance, Carrie made the agonizing decision to move out of the family home. A year after her disappearance, the family put together a walkathon in the community to keep Amber on everyone's radar. It had been a year since she vanished, and there was still no news about what could have happened to her. Shortly after the one-year anniversary, Chelsea King was reported missing, and Amber's family rushed to aid in the search for her. A familiar scene played out, with floods of volunteers searching the area, desperate to find the young girl and bring her home. Chelsea's family was astounded by the outpouring of support, where the community banded together to help. They conducted the most extensive search effort in the community's history. Amber Dubois disappeared without a trace, but Chelsea left clues behind. Her underwear and a shoe were found near the trail, which combined with her car and cell phone helped lead authorities to her body. It was the underwear that linked John to the case. Criminalist Annie Marie Schaefer developed Chelsea's DNA profile matching the blood on Chelsea's underwear, and she also found a semen that was John Gardner's. John was at a bar on the western shore of Lake Hodges when authorities started to patrol the area for a man that would fit his description and soon found him. He told them they had the wrong person, but a U.S. Marshal swiftly put him in handcuffs. Cars filled with men and women circled John so he couldn't run away. Unable to Mirandize John, authorities could not ask specific questions about where he was the night of Chelsea's disappearance or what happened to her, and they could only hope that he'd tell them her whereabouts. They were still hopeful that they would find her alive. John didn't comply, insisting that he didn't know her and saying that he'd had several drinks, making him a poor witness. Detectives could smell the alcohol, but John didn't seem belligerent or sloppy drunk. His pants were wet and muddy, which he told police was due to him falling on his way to the bar, but they were confident that his disheveled state resulted from him moving Chelsea's body either into the water or out of it. He told them that all he knew of her was what he saw on the TV, but throughout the interview, he went through dramatic mood swings. One minute, he was erupting into inappropriate fits of laughter. The next... He was filled with rage, and then he would abruptly become calm. The lead interviewer told him that they had DNA that linked him to Chelsea, but he was unfazed. 
claiming to be the victim of another wrongful accusation. He referenced his 2000 arrest, where he said he was convicted for a crime he never committed and that the authorities also lied about having his DNA on file during that case. He also made an odd comment that didn't sit well with the detectives. He said that they would also try to blame him for Amber Dubois' disappearance as well, something that came completely out of the blue. They placed a picture of Chelsea in front of him and demanded he tell them where she was, to which he gave them a blank look and said he had never seen her before. But then, when the interviewers left the room momentarily, John looked at the picture and muttered, quote, Bitch. Detectives needed information. There was still a missing girl out there, and every hour the likelihood of finding her alive diminished. They sought any crumb of evidence that would give them insight into her whereabouts and began the process of getting search warrants. Another case of a young female being attacked while on a run was revived. On December 27, 2009, 22-year-old Candace Moncayo went for a run around Lake Hodges, a trail south of Escondido and north of Rancho Bernardo. It was a pleasant, sunny morning, and she finished her run around 10.30 a.m. when she crossed paths with a tall, brown-haired stranger. When she got close to him, he pushed her to the ground, climbed on top of her, and used his weight to hold her down. She screamed, convinced he was about to rape her, then launched her elbow at his nose, smacking it with such force that she almost broke it. She freed herself and ran for her life. She called 911, and the details of what had just happened became blurry. The police believed the incident was a robbery rather than an attempted rape. While authorities rushed to the scene to search for the attacker, after a few hours, their search was closed when they couldn't find the large man with a bleeding nose. Once John was in custody, detectives reached out to Candace to see if she could identify her attacker. They sent her a packet of photographs that included John's and hurried so she would see the pictures before the news of John's arrest was released and his image was broadcast all over the TV and social media. She immediately identified John. Following John's arrest, detectives searched his grandmother's house with the hopes that they'd find Chelsea there, but it was empty as his grandmother was still in the hospital. Investigators also entered Kathy's home and took all potential evidence they could find. Amongst the things that they took were computers and the headless snake that was still in the trash can. They pressured Kathy for help, explaining that their main concern was finding Chelsea, but Kathy's loyalty was to her son. She was interviewed by a Department of Justice special agent who wanted a better understanding of John Gardner. Kathy's image of her son differed from how victims and witnesses described him. She mentioned that he was taking Effexor for his mental health struggles, and while she acknowledged that his behavior could be impulsive, she also called him kind-hearted. When she spoke about the night that Chelsea disappeared, she described it as an ordinary evening where John went on one of his walks, which he often did when he stayed at her house. Refusing to tell them where John walked, as it would likely incriminate him, she said little else, infuriating investigators who urged her to choose to protect her community rather than her son. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. John's booking photo was released to the news and a flood of witness testimony came through. Two people saw him walking in the park a few hours after Chelsea's disappearance. 
His presence while he was on the trails was odd. While he said hello to a few people that passed him, those that interacted with John found his presence menacing as he made them feel uncomfortable. On March 2, 2010, authorities received the call they had been dreading when FBI agents found a body in the lake. They were in a boat on the water when, on the south shore of Lake Hodges, they saw blonde hair beneath disturbed dirt and uncovered the shallow grave where Chelsea was buried. Her body was about 10 feet from where her shoe was found, but due to harsh weather and low temperatures, searchers couldn't locate her. Cadaver dogs wouldn't have picked up on her scent as the water's cold temperatures meant that her body had barely decomposed. Sheriff Bill Gore, who had grown close to the family over the past few days, went to the King's home where he delivered the devastating news. Once Chelsea's body was found, Amber's family doubted their daughter could have met the same fate. Her mother, Carrie, swore on the CBS Early Show that John was not connected to Amber's disappearance, but she acknowledged that she could be in denial. While the community reeled from Chelsea's murder, John's attorneys worked frantically to avoid the death penalty, an almost certainty now that they had a body. They reached out to the San Diego District Attorney to make a deal. John would lead them to Amber's body to avoid being sent to death row. While they had the blessing of Chelsea's parents, it was kept secret from the public. When John took authorities to find Amber's body, his attitude was oddly casual, making conversation with those around him and smoking cigarettes. He led them up a steep hill and down a curved path. While the view of the mountains was breathtaking, it was also a secluded, barely lit spot that was perfect for hiding a body. John might have claimed to have chosen it randomly, but he was not the first serial killer to choose that location. Other bodies had been disposed in that area, including Leticia Hernandez, who went missing in 1989, and the bodies of four prostitutes murdered in the 1980s. It wasn't until John saw a rusted water heater that he knew where he was, pointing out that shovel marks were still visible. He told them her body was there, but he got rid of her clothes and anything else she had. They soon found traces of a shallow grave where they found human hair. The FBI and crime scene investigators took over the operation to recover the remains. They were unsure if Amber's remains would be the only ones they would find given John's dark history. Carrie, Moe, and Dave were called to the Escondido police station where the police told them they had uncovered some of Amber's remains. They delivered the haunting information that they had not found her entire body yet potentially due to wild animals reaching her before the investigators. The only upside to the tragic news was that it cleared Dave's name, but the damage of the allegations made against him would never go away. Candlelight vigils were held for both girls. The trauma that the community incurred was unbearable. Young women started to carry mace and avoid being alone in public, particularly on nature trails. Parents held their children tighter than usual, as many of them knew it could have happened to their daughters. Classmates sought therapy to process the terror and grief. After finding Amber's remains, authorities went quiet so they could conduct the rest of their investigation without interference from the public, but her family couldn't cope with the lack of information. Medical examiners were hesitant to give any information about the case, aware that if anything got to the media, it could ruin the case. Carrie wouldn't be ignored, so she went on Larry King Live to question why she was never told how they found Amber or if John was even involved in the case. There was a clear difference between how Amber's case and Chelsea's case were handled, as authorities gave Chelsea's family a much clearer idea of what happened to their daughter than they did for Amber's family. 
pressure mounted for investigators to produce physical evidence linking John to Amber's death, but it became increasingly difficult as time passed. Two San Diego gas and electric workers claimed that they saw a man speaking to a young female on the day of her disappearance as they stood next to a gray Ford Focus that morning. But by the time the workers reported the incident, they couldn't remember John or Amber's appearances enough to identify them. The district attorney had a difficult conversation with the King family about John taking a guilty plea and avoiding the death penalty if he confessed to Amber's death and Candace's attack. The Kings agreed to the terms. Uncertain if John would change his mind or how the media would spin the story, the DA knew that the best way for the community to heal was for the case not to go to trial. Once John accepted the plea deal, she held a press conference to explain that they had no physical evidence to link John to Amber's murder, and without his confession, they would likely never be able to prove that he did it. John's attorneys strongly advised him to remain quiet, but he received regular emails from many media outlets, making it too enticing for him to speak up. On April 25, 2010, he used KFMB-TV to issue a public apology aimed at his victims' families to make himself look better. He confessed to his crimes, talking about his unbearable self-loathing and immense regret. The reporter tried to get him to admit to other crimes, but was unsuccessful. John said he was open to talking to his victim's parents about what he did and how, but he asserted that it was sacred information that he would only share with them and not reporters. Carrie took John up on his offer to talk about her daughter's death. In what he thought would be a private exchange, she emailed her request to one of John's attorneys, which was later sent to the media. She accused them of putting her on John's no-visit list, which led to a call with her, her attorney, and John's attorneys. They compiled a list of questions that she had for him, but she needed to hear it from John. She wrote a letter to John about meeting him, something his attorneys were firmly against, but he wanted to follow through with his promise. Reporters caught Carrie standing outside of the jail while Kathy and John's sisters were there to visit him. In a scene replayed many times over TV news that night, Carrie confronted Kathy and Shannon, begging to meet with John. They got away from Carrie and went inside the jail, while Carrie told reporters that she just wanted closure after the unbearable and inescapable pain that she endured. She knew she would never be able to feel at peace until she knew what had happened to Amber. How did he lure her into his car, and was she scared? Did she know what was coming, and did she fight or plead with him to stop? But above all, Carrie needed to know why he chose her daughter. With Carrie speaking so openly to reporters, Kathy told John's attorneys that it couldn't make the situation any worse if she met with her son. If it meant that the media would leave John, his attorneys, and his family alone, John's attorneys were willing to approve the meeting. Carrie was given 30 minutes, during which she followed advice to be calm so as to not elicit a reaction from him. He complied, telling her what had happened after he picked up the knife with parts of the conversation so intense that he couldn't look at her as he recalled the grim details of that day. Afterward, she gave details of her conversation to the media, and Jean told his mother that he was ashamed of himself. Kathy wanted to address the victim's families during the hearing, although she wanted them to know how sorry and devastated she was by what happened. She was also known for defending her son, sometimes blindly. The sentencing for the hearing was already set, making the judge rule that Kathy's speaking would be inappropriate. The court was packed on the day of sentencing. There were two cameras in the room, one for print media and another TV camera that sent footage to the overflow courtroom. 
John's behavior was erratic from the moment he entered, taking quick breaths and appearing distracted. His attorneys warned him to maintain his composure, and from the beginning, it was clear that this would be difficult. The judge started the hearing with a 14-minute video of Amber Dubois as a memorial to her. He watched as a montage of photos of his victim played, and at points, tears spewed down his cheeks, which attendees and prosecutors saw as him looking for sympathy rather than pure remorse. Using the opportunity to change Amber's narrative from focusing on her gruesome death, friends spoke about the things they wanted to remember her for, like her love of animals, books, and her carefree, fun-loving spirit. While Carrie was once the most outspoken person in this case, her anger appeared to dissipate after her private meeting with John. Her speech commemorated her love for her daughter, who was stolen from her at a cruelly young age. Dave couldn't stand John's TV interview and that he used his time in the press to victimize himself when the truth was that he should have been kept in prison after his 2000 arrest. Moe likened him to a mountain lion that was caged to protect the community, then let out to find its prey. Once testimony for Amber was over, a memorial video of Chelsea played. It celebrated her passion and fearless approach to life, how she would laugh with her friends until they cried, and her overall lust for life. Brent spoke of his daughter's difficult birth and said she was courageous while John was a coward, using his struggles with mental illness as an excuse when it was convenient. Then, Brent moved on to Kathy, who he chastised for being aware of her son's issues, but put protecting her son ahead of protecting the rest of the world from him. As a psychiatric nurse, she should have known the risk that he posed, and he made it clear that God would have the final say over the wrongs that her silence caused. Additionally, he attacked KFMB-TV and CBS News for airing John's interview and the legal system that failed his victims. When it came time for Kelly King to speak, she was a far cry from the heartbroken yet calm woman she was during her TV interviews. She demanded John look at her while she expressed her rage toward him for the agony that he put her family through. He hesitantly glanced up only for a moment, then looked away, and when she told him to do it again, he refused, to which she said she wasn't surprised. Candace Moncayo struggled through her statement, pushing through tears as she talked about her attack and how haunted she was that she was the only victim that could confront him. She suffered severe trauma, reliving the experience and unable to feel safe, but she knew she had to speak up on behalf of Chelsea and Amber. She ended her testimony with her reasons for being there, to advocate for the victims, get him permanently off the streets, and restore peace to the scarred community. Her last reason, she said, was to, quote, ask him how his nose is, which provoked such a strong reaction from John that many people in the court felt they finally saw the actual John, the monster, not the victim. He snarled, clenched his teeth, and his expression became wild, and he told his team that she never hit him. However, it was more than likely that she did, and he couldn't stand people knowing that he lost a fight, especially to a girl. John Albert Gardner was sentenced to three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole and $46,000 in fines and restitution to the victim's families, Candace Moncayo, and the state. Once the hearing was over and sentencing was set, John agreed to an interview with investigators to discuss his crimes. He relished in the attention, knowing that the people asking him questions were very invested in his answers. As was expected, he had more victims than just Amber, Chelsea, and Candace. He admitted to violently raping a prostitute, many failed assault attempts, and stalking a 16-year-old. 
When he laid his sights on Amber, he trapped her in a quiet street where she had nowhere to run and was far enough from the school to not be detected by security cameras. He said she was his first kill, but he didn't enjoy doing it, despite thinking that he would. He preferred sexually assaulting his victims. After a year, though, he was ready to do it again. He caught Chelsea when she was on the running trail by tackling her and dragging her into a secluded area, where he raped and strangled her to death. When he walked away, he grabbed her clothes and emptied them into a storm drain while he walked to his mother's house. He didn't realize that he was missing a shoe and her underwear, although he told Kathy that he left her underwear on the trail deliberately so that he would be caught, but changed his story when he spoke to detectives, claiming it was a mistake. Later, in an interview with 48 Hours, he made it clear that he would kill again and needed to be locked away. In prison, he lived among high-profile killers, one of which was Charles Manson. Manson wanted to help John to monetize his fame, suggesting that he make t-shirts and other pieces of memorabilia to sell online. But Kathy refused to do anything like that, aware that the public already hated them enough. Laws were supposed to be in place to protect minors from people like John. He was a convicted sex offender that violated his parole many times, yet still walked the streets freely. Per Megan's law, John should have registered his home address at least once a year, within five days of his birthday, or risk becoming homeless. Jessica's law exists to stop sex offenders from living 2,000 feet from schools or parks. John registered his address as his grandmother's house because Kathy's house was too close to a school. However, he lived between the two residents, finding a loophole in the law. His crimes made it clear that more intensive supervision protocols must be in place when enforcing these laws. John should have been assessed after his five-year prison sentence, and when he violated his parole, he should have immediately returned to prison. Kathy spoke out about the situation, too, because as much as the state of California failed Amber and Chelsea, she felt they also failed to protect her son. When his violations were overlooked, it played into his mindset that he could break the law and get away with it. Later, it came out that a prison psychologist declared twice that John was too dangerous to be released, but a mental health evaluator disagreed with him on both occasions. A psychiatrist also stated that it was not John's mental illness that made him commit his crimes, but that he was just a bad guy. Combined with Kathy's reports of his many psychotic breaks and suicidal and homicidal thoughts, it was shocking that a mental health evaluator would object to the psychologist's diagnosis. With all of the warnings about John's behavior and fears of what he would do in the future, the King family knew that they had to do something to stop anyone else from going through the same thing as Chelsea. They created Chelsea's Law, a law that increases penalties, parole provisions, and oversight for society's worst sex offenders, the ones that prey on and attack children. Under the law, a sexual predator who commits sex crimes against a child faces a one-strike, life-without-parole penalty. It increased parole periods, included GPS monitoring for anyone convicted of a sex crime involving physical contact with children, and a prohibition against loitering. The law involves more oversight over convicted sex offenders, including psychological evaluations and polygraph testing for all sex offenders on probation or parole. It also means that offenders won't be released if two separate psychologists deem them too dangerous, something that could have completely changed the lives of John's victims. John Albert Gardner pretended to be a victim of mental health problems, but he knew exactly what he was doing. He was a rapist who escalated to murder and thought he could get away with anything. 
He was not a victim. He was a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.